0: Hello everyone. So glad that you are here. Uh, today really is the beginning of a very significant um, week for any and every follower of Jesus. It's what is referred to as Holy Week. Um, and in light of that, uh, and all that God would want to do in our hearts this week, I encourage you to, to fully engage in the services that that we're, are scheduled, that we have scheduled. So one is Good Friday, um, information about that in your newsletter. And then of course, Easter services we're celebrating next um, next weekend. Something different that we're, we're doing this year is that there will be live teaching at both of our campuses. So I'm excited that Pastor KJ will be live at our West campus and I will be live here, uh, Lord willing. All right. And so uh, both of us will be preaching the same passage. Now, um, by the way, there will be a lot of people attending Christ Community next weekend, many of whom are not regular attenders. Some will be first-time guests, and we have an opportunity to help them have a great experience. So one, just a couple things. Um, One, we can choose to park on the other side of 14th Avenue uh, near Central High School, so the space is available around the building. A second thing that we could do is, um, that you could do to help is to attend any other service besides our 9.30 Sunday um, a.m. service at 15th Street. Every year that is that is our most popular service, which means that we often end up um, with new people sitting in the lobby watching um, the service, which is not good. So if you are able to come to any service besides 930 Sunday morning, that would be really helpful. And one other thing um, that you can do um, was mentioned on the, the, the video announcements is just to make it a transformative weekend is invite someone to come. Invite someone to come. Um, most people, are willing and interested in attending church on Easter. They just need an invite. They need an invite from you and from me. And so we've created a a cool invite card for that purpose. You can find those in the lobby. So I I really, I can't wait for what God is going to do in us this week and in the lives of people um, this this week, um, this holy week. So that's very cool. All right, if you have your Bible or Bible app, feel free to turn to um, Ephesians chapter 2. We're, we're doing this verse-by-verse verse walk through this book in the New Testament. And today, we, we come to a passage that offers a, a diagnosis about what's wrong with our world? And honestly, what's wrong with us? You know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to to realize there is something very broken about the world around us. I mean, one quick look at Google News or wherever your news source is at at any given moment reveals a world that is in chaos and conflict and pain. But of course, we don't need Google News to reveal that to us. We, We can look in the lives of people around us. And we can look at our own lives and we see the same brokenness and conflict and struggle. So what is wrong with our world? What, what is wrong with us as humans? Now, people offer all sorts of answers, you know, diagnoses to that question. So some would say, oh, what's wrong is our educational system. Or what's wrong is our political climate today? Or what's wrong is our legal system? Or what's wrong is the breakdown of the family or climate change or the entertainment industry or or whatever? I mean, there are all sorts of diagnoses being offered. But the one that I find most plausible, the one that I think most accurately fits the world that I see is is the, the diagnosis offered us in the Bible. Now, whether you are a person of faith or not, I invite you to consider the Bible's diagnosis of our root problem as humans. So let me read, and we see this diagnosis in the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2. Let me read this. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. This is God's word. Okay, what Paul is doing here is, is offering a diagnosis, again, of what is wrong with us as humans. What is wrong with our world? And he says it in the initial phrase, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. See, from a biblical perspective, our main problem as humans is sin. Now, let me, let me stop right there because this word sin has so much religious baggage associated with it that often when people hear this word, they kind of check out. Christians check out because they think, I already know this. Or, or oh, Jesus has forgiven me, so it's, you know, it's no big deal. Or, or, or people who would not identify themselves as Christians, they check out because it feels like such an archaic term. I mean, sin... Seriously, this is the 21st century. You know, you're still talking about sin. You know, and Moses four thousand years ago. All that stuff, right? Right. Whatever camp we're in, it is it is very easy for us to view sin as something that is pretty irrelevant to our lives. And I just want to say right up front: I want to say sin is way more relevant to your life than you realize. Part of our problem is the is that we have a very shallow understanding of sin. So if I were to ask you to define sin, I'm guessing most of us would say sin is breaking God's law, right? Sin is doing something wrong. But from a biblical perspective, sin is so much more complex than that. So the first word that Paul uses in verse 1 here for sin, it's, it's translated transgressions. And that speaks of this idea of, of breaking the law. It speaks of this idea of crossing a line. Okay. Um, but the second word that Paul uses for sin, it, it's a word that literally means to miss the mark. So it, w- it was an archery term that would be used to describe how far an arrow was off from, from, the bull, from missing the bullseye. Which raises the question, okay, if sin is missing the mark, what is the mark that we're missing? And here's how the Bible answers that. The target, the the bullseye, the goal is a life with God at the center of everything. So it's the life that Adam and Eve experienced in Genesis 1 and 2 in the beginning pages of the Bible. And in that initial context, there was no sin. They were living their lives with God at the center of everything, and life was good. Their relationships, their motivations, their emotions were whole. They lived in complete dependence upon and love for God. They lived in the bullseye of this life that they were created for, the same bullseye you and I are created for. But in Genesis 3, they made a fateful decision. They they believed a lie... That trusting God was actually causing them to miss out on things. Um, and so they 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 asserted their independence and they disobeyed what God had told them to do. And suddenly they not only experienced transgression, they stepped across the line, they not only experienced transgression, they also experienced sin. They missed the mark. They were no longer in the bullseye of life that God intended for them. Something else was now at the center of their life, and that something was self. So all of their decisions, all of their motivations were now tainted by this self-absorption. See, at its essence, that's what sin is. That's what sin is. Just look at how the word, the word sin is spelled, S-I-N. Notice the middle letter, I. See, to sin is to live with I, to live with self at the center of my life rather than God. That's sin. Now, when we define sin in this way, as a self-absorption, when we define sin in this way, it suddenly takes on a whole new meaning. It takes on a whole new relevance. We discover that there are all sorts of things that are influencing us to live in this self-absorbed way. Things we aren't even consciously aware of. And Paul points out a few of them in the verses we just read. So one is our culture. Our culture Paul says in verse 2, you were dead in your sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. See, whether we we realize it or not, whether we like it or not, we are all a part of a culture. And that culture influences what we value and how we think and what we believe. And here's the deal about the culture that we live in, this particular culture, that the natural bent of our culture is not toward God. It is toward self. It is toward self-absorption, self-centeredness. And because we are submerged in this, we just are, because we're submerged in it, we don't even realize how significantly it's influencing us in this direction. So, for instance, just one example, one of our huge cultural values is physical beauty, physical attractiveness, we are bombarded with this. There is an unreachable standard of, 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 of physical beauty promoted in television and movies and social media and the internet, all that stuff. That's our culture. That's our culture. So how does that impact us? You may think, oh, I don't think it impacts well. Hey, it impacts us. Here's one way, you know, let's just talk body image. I mean, how many of us really, how many of us really like our appearance? I mean, how many of us really like our body? I mean, I don't. You know, when I, when I see the biceps or the hair or whatever on most guys on television, I can't help but feel less than. And if I focus too long on that, you know what happens? I start feeling depressed. I start feeling anxious. I start feeling angry. I mean, how, how many of us can relate to that? See, what is that rooted in? We're not living with God at the center of our lives as our identity, we're we're not, no, no, we're we're living with self at the center. See, we're missing the mark from the life that God longs for us to experience. Our our culture is influencing us to value these things, to live this way, and often we aren't even aware of it. But but it's not just our culture. Another thing that helps fuel this self-absorbed way of living is our enemy. Our enemy, look at verse 2. When you followed the ways of this world, there's the culture, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. I mean, there is such a fascination these days with spiritual things, right? Television shows, paranormal, all that stuff, and with demons and evil beings and all that. And the Bible says this stuff is real. The Bible says this is real. This realm is real. And at the top of this heap of demonic whatever is this real spirit being known as Satan, or the devil. And so Jesus talked a lot about, he actually confronted the devil. He talked a lot about, it, but he, he describes the devil's job description in John chapter 10, verse 10. Check this out. Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Again, what a contrast. Jesus wants to bring life. That's the bullseye. He wants to bring life. <clears throat> But Satan wants to steal. He wants to kill and destroy. Satan's primary objective is to do whatever he can to deceive people into living lives without God at the center. That's how he does it. He doesn't force anyone to live without God at the center. He uses deception. He uses lying. This is how he got Adam and Eve to rebel against God. He didn't force them to do that. No, no, no. All he did was just lie to them. You're, really, you're missing out. Did God really say that? You know, that, that's all he did. He just lied to them. And the same, he does the same thing to us today. He lies to us, but his lies sound a whole lot like our thinking. In fact, often it's kind of a mixture of our thoughts and his suggestions. Like, uh, you know, it's okay for me to steal from the company that I work for because of how they treat me. Or... or I, I deserve this little fling on the side. I deserve this adulterous thing because of how my spouse ignores me. Or, you know, looking at porn is not really hurting anyone. Or, you know, it, it's, it's okay. It's okay to hold a grudge against my neighbor after all that he did to me. There's no way I'm forgiving him. See, Satan loves to use these these lies. They're really lies. He loves to use these lies to to just to sow these lies in our minds, hoping that we'll believe them. Because once we believe them, we start living according to that. He doesn't have to lift a finger. We freely choose this. I mean, ever since the Garden of Eden, Satan has been offering us a false narrative about what is true. Ever since the Garden of Eden, he's been offering you and me a false narrative about what is true. He's been offering us a totally different bullseye. You you don't want that God stuff. No, no, no. You, You deserve better. Oh, No, no. Life isn't found in that God stuff. No, life is found over here, right? Indulge in this. Live for yourself. You deserve it. See, we miss the mark because we're pursuing another bullseye that's promising life, but it doesn't deliver. It doesn't deliver. Now, now here, here's here's my point. Sin, sin is not simply a moral lapse. Sin is, is not simply this, oh oops, I just broke God's command. You know, it, it's not simply that. Sin is our choosing to believe a false narrative about what life is truly about. And here's the scary part. Guess who we end up following? Even without realizing it, when we believe this narrative, guess who we end up following? Paul says in verse 2, we end up following the ruler of this world. See, this is the ultimate deception. We think we're choosing self. I'm a self-made person, and I'm self-sufficient, and I'm independent. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, oh, yeah, choose self, choose self. We think we're becoming more self-sufficient, more self-made, but in actuality, you know what we're doing? We are choosing the path Satan wants us on, and we're actually following him when we're doing that. We're following him. Now, there's one other factor that helps kind of fuel us missing the mark, or this self-absorption, and that is our desires, our desires. Okay, so look at verse 3. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires. Now, this word that Paul uses for cravings, that's translated cravings, this is a fascinating word. It literally, it, it speaks of more than just desire. The word literally means over-desire. Over desire. <clears throat> See, it vividly describes the propensity of our heart to take a good thing and make it a God thing. Well, whether it's food or money or sex or political power. Or success, or exercise, or whatever. Our human heart instinctively takes these things and turns them into idols, into ultimate things, things that we feel we must have in order to be happy. I must have that in order to be happy, in order for my life to be fulfilled. I mean, the last election, the last presidential election, was, was a, a vivid picture of this, right? People, and this probably happens after every election, but I just noticed it more this time, but people were battling severe depression simply because of who got elected. Now, it, it's, it is totally fine to have political opinions, and I encourage you to vote, all that stuff, and it's okay to be disappointed in a particular outcome, but to sink into despair because of an election result? that reveals a heart that has made a god out of politics. Someone has wisely said that the human heart is an idol factory. And it's true. We are constantly making good things, god things. We are constantly turning good things into God things, things that we need in order to feel good about ourselves, things that we, you know, we need for our identity. We're basing our identity, our value, our worth on these things. They become God things. And because this is a heart issue, again, this is over this is a heart issue, we often don't even realize what's happening. We don't even realize what's happening. Again, I'm trying to get us to look at sin beyond, oh, I just broke a command. I'm trying to get us to look at it beneath the surface, this is a hard issue. For instance, let me give you an example. I can post on a photo on Facebook, you know, as a way to acknowledge something really cool going on in my life, you know, with my dad or whatever, you know, Just and, and that's, a, that's a totally cool thing. But what if after I do that, I start checking every 10 minutes to see how many likes I have? And the more likes I have, the better I feel about myself. And the fewer likes I have, the worse I feel. See, what, what just happened I took a good thing and made it a God thing. I'm now using Facebook as a functional savior. I'm I'm now using Facebook to determine my value. See, this this biblical concept of over-desire, this totally, in my opinion, it totally explains why addictions are so rampant today. I mean, when you think about it, addiction makes no sense, rationally speaking, right? It it really makes no sense from a rational perspective. Why would a person freely choose to keep drinking or to keep doing drugs or to keep working 90 hours a week or to keep looking at porn or to keep gambling when they know that by doing so, they're going to destroy something they really care about, their marriage, their children, their own health or whatever? Why risk Losing these precious things, right, that, 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 we've, that they value, all for the sake of this particular behavior. Why would anyone do that? Well, there's only one reason. Their heart has become enslaved to this other desire. That's what's happened. We become enslaved by our idols. We all worship something. So when we take a good thing and we turn it into a God thing, that's what we worship. We become enslaved to that. So our our idols, our over-desires, are actually fueling this destructive self-absorption, and we are freely choosing it. We are freely choosing it. See, I, I feel like the Bible's perspective on sin as not just, oh, I I made a mistake. The Bible's perspective on sin as this self-absorbed way of living, I feel like that offers a plausible explanation for what's wrong with us and what's wrong with our world. Again, sin is not just an occasional moral lapse. It is a way of living. Sin is a way of living uh, that that, that, that puts self at the center of of our lives rather than God. Now, you may think, okay, but so what? I hear you, I hear you, but but so what? I mean, what's the big deal about living my life with with self at the center? You know, what's the big deal about living most of my life with self at the center? Here's the big deal. What is the one thing you are incapable of when your life is self-absorbed? Love. Love. A self-absorbed life will cripple our capacity to love. And that is a big deal from God's perspective. A God who is love. That is a big deal. So how does a loving God, a God who is love, how does he respond when we as people freely choose a self-absorbed life rather than a loving life? Well, Paul tells us here, look again at the the end of verse three, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Yikes. I mean, that's quite a statement. So what, what does it mean? This word wrath, it is not describing uncontrolled anger, you know, just bursts of rage, flying off the handle. That's not what it means. No, this word refers to a righteous indignation based upon justice. See, God has a strong reaction against self-absorbed living. Why? Because of the damage it causes to us and to others. So when Adam and Eve chose to miss the mark and embrace self over God. The impact was horrible, and it was far-reaching. I mean, their relationship with each other was completely damaged. I mean, how, how can a person truly love when self is at the center of their lives? They can't. And that's exactly what we see happening in Genesis 3 immediately. Adam starts blaming her, blaming Eve. Eve. Their own attitude toward themselves was impacted. They're hiding from each other. They're hiding from God. Shame has now taken root. They, they no longer felt loved for who they were. That's what a self-focused life results in. It, it results in walls being built around our hearts. We become increasingly critical and judgmental and bitter and angry. So C.S. Lewis, if you're familiar with him, great, just a great writer years ago, um, philosopher. But he, in his book, he wrote a book called The Great Divorce, which is this allegory of hell. Um, and so he allegorically describes this bus ride to hell. Um, and, and he discovers in this allegory, he discovers that hell is this place where people are increasingly absorbed in their own selfishness and they're freely choosing it. And and here's the deal. As they're freely choosing self, their world becomes smaller and smaller, and they are miserable, they are angry, they are alone, they are bitter. They end up in this constrictive, self-built prison, all of their own choosing. See, there's a serious warning in this passage, but it's not the warning you think The warning of God's wrath is not about him sending a lightning bolt our direction if we step out of line one one time too many. No, 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 that's not what this is about. No, we see in Romans 1, in the book of Romans chapter 1, it says God's wrath is is being poured out on humanity in a very interesting way. It's not talking about his wrath is gonna be poured out. He's saying his wrath is being poured out. And here's how it's being poured out, Paul says. Three times in this chapter, It says these words, and God gave them over. God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity. God gave them over to shameful lusts. God gave them over to a depraved mind. See, what does that mean? What does that mean? It means that his wrath is poured out by simply withdrawing his presence. By pulling back and letting our self-absorbed way of living take its natural course. In other words, God says, if you want to live your life with self at the center, you're free to do that. But you need to know that when you do that, I'm going to step back and let you experience the consequences of that. Including the loss of freedom as as your self-centeredness takes more and more control of your life. That's what God's wrath looks like. Him, it's not lightning bolts, no. It is him letting us experience the consequences of our self-centered choices. So think about, think about that for a moment. Especially especially if you're sitting there thinking, I know there are some areas in my life that are not aligned with God, but so what? I mean, no one's perfect. If that's what you're thinking, I want you to ponder what we just talked about with God's wrath because it it is absolutely true that in Christ your sin is completely covered by the grace of God but please hear me God's grace does not remove us from the short term or long term impact of our self centered choices our self centered choices our self absorbed choices over time change us Our hearts become increasingly hardened. Our love for Jesus wanes, as does our ability and our desire to love other people. All of that is impacted, and it's a part of God's wrath. See, living with self at the center of our lives causes us to miss the bullseye of the fullness of life God created us to experience, which is a big deal. Again, with oh, I can't sin against God, and these are all like no, no, this is about us. <laughs> this is about what happens to us when we pursue this kind of lifestyle. When we pursue self-absorption. Now, I know this is this is kind of heavy. I get that it's dark, you know. I know that, but it's really important, and I think it's kind of a, a really a perfect passage to focus on as we enter into Holy Week. This is really important. Um, here's why we we need to see what sin really is. If we ever want to walk in freedom from it, if it's just, Oh, moral lapse, no big deal. We, if if that's what we think it is, we'll never walk in freedom from it. We we need to see what it really is in order to ever walk in freedom from it. I remember Raylene and I, our first year of marriage was horrible for Raylene. I was fine. Uh, it was horrible for Raylene, um, because of some of the things that I was doing to her heart, but I didn't see it. I didn't see it. And if she would have brought it up, I would have dismissed it as something really minor. See, my blindness to my own self-absorption was destroying my marriage and I didn't see it. The same thing happens spiritually. If 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 we only see sin as a few periodic mistakes we make, you know, or an occasional breaking of a command in the Bible, we will be totally blind to its impact. But when we begin to see sin through this lens of self-absorption and the damage that it causes in our lives relationally and emotionally and spiritually, when we see that, we will long for a different way of living. We will long for a different way of living rather than, oh, yeah, I sinned, but no big deal. We will long for a different way of living, a life of wholeness, a life with God at the center and with love in operation, fully in operation. So how do we experience that? Well, here's how not to. It's not by trying hard to be less focused, less self-focused. No, no. Our our self-absorption is so pervasive, it is so pervasive that quick fixes and goal setting and TED Talks, you know, that's not gonna help much. But Paul tells us the one thing that can actually rescue us from this pervasive self-absorption. Verse 4. And just kind of let these words sink into your heart. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. See, that's the solution. That is the only solution to our self-absorbed, destructive ways of living. In fact, the Greek, we miss it in the English translation. The Greek literally starts, verse four, but God. That's how it starts. Verses one to three, oh, life's a mess, we're a mess, you know, self-absorbed, all that. But God. God. That's what changes it. That's what changes everything. It is to be made alive by God. And Paul's description of God here is so powerful. He says God is rich in mercy. He's a trillionaire in mercy. And he is absolutely loving. He is absolutely loving. He repeats the word love twice in this because of his great love for us. You don't see it in the English. It's actually repeated in the Greek because he is going overboard. God is absolutely loving. And here's here's what that means. God is not self-absorbed. God is not self-absorbed. He is not tight-fisted. He is not harsh. He is not relationally distant. No, he is love. He is the essence of and the embodiment of love. And that love drove him to the cross. See, Christ died on the cross for you and me. Think about this, what that means. He, and we, oh yeah, yeah, I've heard that. Hang with me here. This is what he did. He took upon himself the impact of all of our self-absorption. He took upon himself the impact of all of our self-absorbed ways of living and the damage that it had caused and that it causes ourselves and others. He took all of that death on himself so that we could be made alive in him, so that we could live in this wonderful, life-giving bullseye of God's ultimate desire for us. Okay, sounds great, but how do we experience this? How do we experience this? If, if it's not by trying hard um, to be less self-absorbed and making promises and all that, so how do we get there? Well, Paul tells us a few verses later, a verse that's pretty familiar to some of us here, some, some of you here is, verse say, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, faith, that's another word we got to define. You know, sin was one, we got to redefine. This is another word I think we have to, we need some defining here. What, what is faith? Because some people say, oh, faith is just belief. Just believing, believe in Jesus, right? Faith is just believing. I don't, I don't think that really captures the essence of genuine faith. So I believe Jesus died on the cross. So do a lot of demons, you know? Um, so what? I mean, demons believe that. Faith is not simply a a, a a mental conviction about something that is true. No, no, no. Faith is a relational trust. That's what faith is. Faith is a relational trust. It is to put my personal trust in who Jesus is and what he has done for me. See, Paul says that when we put our faith, when we put our personal trust in Jesus, we are made alive. In other words, his life becomes our life. So faith is what puts us in God's bullseye. Because it allows Jesus to express his life through us. Now, this is really important. Please hear me. This is not just a one-time thing. If you're thinking, oh, yeah, I did that when I was 10 years old. I placed my trust in Jesus and everything's good now. This is not, that's, that's valuable. But that's not only what this is about. This is not about that one time years ago I put my faith in Christ. No, this this is a way of living. We are invited to live by faith. We are invited to live by faith. To live by faith is to choose to be Christ-absorbed rather than self-absorbed. And that changes everything. Really, that changes everything. So, in other words, we now, for for example, we now see our culture's influence through Christ's love. Yeah, we're in this culture submerging it, but now we see it differently. We see it through Christ's love. We we can engage our enemy through Christ's power. We don't have to believe those lies. We can, oh, that's a lie, I'm not going to believe it. We can engage our enemy. Our hearts become filled with one primary desire, Jesus And that desire supersedes all other desires. Christ makes us, and he continues to make us alive in him. See, this is the journey that we are on, folks. This is the journey we are on, a journey out of self-absorbed living into the wholeness of a Christ-absorbed life. This is the journey I am on. Seriously, this is the journey I am on. I can be an incredibly self-absorbed person I can't, I know it. Got to get in the food line first. You know, whatever it is, uh, I, just, I just know that about me and I don't like it, but I know that. And I, 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 I'm, you know, I can make sure I don't make eye contact with that homeless person on the corner. I'm just not going to look at them or making idols out of my sports teams or my political opinions or my golf handicap or my money. I can be a very self-absorbed human being, but I also, I also have experienced seasons When my trust in Jesus is fully alive and I feel fully alive to Him and to others. In those seasons, what I feel deep in my being is this I feel this is what I am created to experience, this is what God designed me for. It is so good. This is what God designed me for. See, you and I were created for so much more than self-absorption. We are created for life. We're created for love. We are created for life. And Jesus makes that possible. <laughs> let's, let's pray. So what I want us to do, I just feel like this is a, kind of the starting place for a very significant week, spiritually speaking. And so I want, us to, I want to create some space for us to respond to what God is saying to us. I really believe as we're ending into Holy Week, I think there's some heart things that God wants to address right now in this moment. He wants us to see our sin the way he does and to embrace his solution to that. So a couple of specific responses. First of all, there may be some of you here and you are seeing for the first time the depth of your self-absorption and your need for Jesus to save you. You realize that you are spiritually dead without him and you need him to make you alive. This is the first time you've ever realized that. And so what I want to do, I want to lead you in a prayer where you could say yes to Jesus in such a way that you receive him by faith and he comes to live in you, changing you from the inside out, okay? So let just let me lead you in a prayer. Just pray along with me in the silence of your heart. Dear God, I admit that I am self-absorbed and that that has separated me from the life you have for me. I believe that Jesus died on the cross to take the penalty for my self-absorption. And so I choose right now, Jesus, to place my trust in you and what you have done. I open my heart to receive you. Come live in me through the power of your love. Forgive all of my self-absorption and change me from the inside out. Father, I pray for anyone who prayed that prayer. Hallelujah. Thank you for the life you're inviting them into. Help them grow in that. Second response For those of us here, we are already followers of Jesus. You know he saved you. You know your sins are forgiven. I want you to think for a moment about this question. Is there any area in your life where you're missing the mark? Where self is at the center of your life in this particular area rather than God? Perhaps you've settled into this place of comfortability with that area, whatever it is, or maybe rationalization everyone does it or whatever or why it's okay to live that way. You've, you've maybe settled into that place when you know it is not God's best, it is not God's heart for you. And not only that, it is crippling your capacity to really love others. You're missing out on wholeness. So let's just take a moment and I'm just gonna ask the Holy Spirit to bring to our mind any area like that. So Holy Spirit, would you bring that to our mind right now? so if he's brought something to mind here's what I want you to do I want to encourage you first of all let's just repent he's bringing something to my mind so I want you to just to repent and I'm going to do the same repent in the quiet of your heart just acknowledge that to the Lord God I'm sorry I admit this just confess it to him if we've made idols out of things our over desires are taking more control whatever it is just confess that And now here's what I want you to do. This is the step of faith, but I want you to do it in a little different way. We hear the word faith. Oh yeah, faith, faith, faith. As Christians, I want, you do, I want you to engage your imagination for a moment. Our Imaginations are a good thing that God gave them to us and I want you to engage your imagination. So here, here I want you to envision yourself being enveloped in Christ's love for you. Just imagine that you are right now in the bullseye with Jesus, that you are united with him because you are. You are looking to him for your life and for wholeness. And let let that reality, just kind of enjoy it for a moment here, just being enveloped in his love for you. So let that reality stir in you a greater love for him and a greater desire for his life to flow through you. That's all faith is, right? So God, as we are engaging our imaginations, we're engaging our hearts, we're engaging your word because it tells us this is true. We are enveloped in your love. We're just engaging our imagination to make these truths come alive and so we pray that you would help each one of us live by faith more and more with you Jesus at the center of our heart and life and all that you're inviting us into so thank you thank you for that continue to deepen our experience of our faith in you and when we mess up We go to the cross, we repent, and we do the exact same thing we just did. We, again, place our faith in you. And I pray you transform us as a result. We want to live in the life that you've created us to live. That's what we want more than anything. We want you more than anything. So we love you. So I want to encourage you one final thought here, and then we're going to respond in worship. But this week, if you don't have any devotional kinds of plans, reading plans or whatever, I would encourage you to spend some time in Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 and letting this reality of God's mercy and love, He's made you alive. Let that sink more deeply into your soul, just reminding you of, of where you've been and where Jesus is taking you. So God, thank you. Thank you for who you are. We celebrate who you are right now. So why don't we, why don't we stand as we get to love on Jesus and praise him So God, would you set us free, set us free to worship the amazing God that you are. We love you. We love you, God.